forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in time to tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. This is it. We're doing it. Thank you all for being here. Um... What I'm going to do is go around the table, ask you to introduce yourself, tell the listener somewhere they may have seen your name on their television screens. Uh, Emmy, let's start with you. Yes, I am Emmy Lou Diaz, and you may know me from such shows as Jane the Virgin, Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce, and most recently, the reboot of Charmed on the CW. Is that where you currently are? No, no. We can I... cut that out where I asked that if you want. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Uh... I meant to ask before we started. Yes. the uh, There was a showrunner change, yes. a regime change. Yeah, yeah. So many of us did not return. And I am currently on a show called Station 19 for ABC. Erica. <laughs> I'm Erica Shelton-Kodish. Um, and you may have seen my name on shows like Cold Case, um, Covert Affairs, the Good Wife, uh, Being Mary Jane, and uh, I think is the most recent. Yeah. Yeah. Mark. And I'm Mark Musinski. Um, most recently, you would have seen my name on one of the episodes for Abby's, the NBC multicam. <laughs> <laughs> the rest in peace. <laughs> I know. Great timing. <laughs> what you're saying is you're available. Uh, yes, please. <laughs> All right. Uh, if nothing else, we're trying to get people jobs here. Staffing boost. Right. WTA exactly. staffing boost. <laughs> this is as big a staffing boost as we can get. Um, let's sort of jump in and talk about um, beginnings. Uh, let's talk about breaking in. You know, we talk often on this podcast about the breaking in experience, which is unique to everybody. But I think there are certain lessons that folks can take. Um, and Emmy, let's start with you. What was your, so how did you start to get sort of a foothold uh, or a toehold in this industry? Well, I went to acting school. I think like many writers, I was a theater geek and was uh -huh. totally drawn into the performance aspect of the business. So I did go to acting school and I graduated in 2007 and moved to LA and there was a writer strike that year. Yeah. So there was not a lot happening. I did get an agent and as an actor, as an actor but the things I was going out for were like there was nothing happening in town. Mm -hmm. So Spanish infomercials and like <laughs> gangbangers girlfriend were like the, the stuff that was coming through. So I was a bit at sea when I got here because not a lot was happening. And I really quickly realized that the life of a film and TV actor, because I had done theater on mm -hmm. the East Coast. And so the life of a TV and uh, film actor is really different out here. And so I quickly realized it's not for me. And I started writing just as a way to kind of express myself. I didn't, I was one of those people who didn't know that writing was a job you could have like mm -hmm. on TV or film. Yeah. When did that lightning bolt come? Um, really late. <laughs> really you know late. Now, right? I do. I do know now. And now it's like when you look back and connect the dots, at least for me, it all makes sense now because I was a theater geek. I loved being in the rehearsal room with a bunch of people and like making stuff, devising our own shows out of nothing. And that's what we do all day in the writer's room. So it's now it's like, duh. But back then I didn't know that that was a thing. So I, I always wrote and I had 
I was always compelled to tell stories. And I think once I got to LA, I wanted to just learn the lay of the land. So I got a couple internships. My first assistant job was at a talent management company. Mm -hmm. And I would like teach myself how to write scripts like on the side. Was it through reading scripts? It was through reading scripts. I took a UCLA extension class uh, and read a couple books. And my first spec was a good wife spec. No way. <laughs> it was horrible, but it was so much fun to write it. And I think that was the moment when I came up with my very own episode of a show that I loved, even though it was horrible, it was just so, it just filled me with such joy. And I thought, oh, I, I could do this. This is something I could do. So it kind of took off from there. Were you, uh, you know what, that's a good place to stop. Okay. You're right. Uh, we'll pick up there in a second. Okay. Uh, Erica, what was your background? What what got you out to LA if you were not from here originally? Well, um, I had actually decided when I was 12 years old that I was going to move to Los Angeles and be a TV writer. Really? Yeah. So um, when I look back on it, I really had been, you know, pursuing this career for probably more than 20 years. <laughs> um But um, and actually chose where I went to school based on that sort of, you know, goal. Wait, let me stop you for a second, because this is awesome. Uh, It's so (laughs) rare that I meet someone else who had that experience. Um, What was the TV for you at, you know, like 10, 11, 12 years old? And what made you say, rather than I want to be on that, I want to make that? Well, first, like the first thing was um, a, a... a teacher. It was my middle school teacher who um, she had given us assignment to sort of rewrite an ending of some story or something like Great. that. And I didn't turn mine in on time because <laughs> I was I taken this and just ran with it. And then I turned it in late, and she told me, and she let the dismiss the class and. Then she wanted to talk to me about this paper. And I thought, okay, here, here goes. Um, you know, I got an F because I turned it in late and all that sort of thing. And she just said these words that stuck with me. And that was, you should do this. Wow. And the thing is, is that I was, um, had a particularly sort of dysfunctional childhood. So she doesn't know even to this day that that was like a lifeline. And, So she's put the seed in my head. And then there were other teachers there that helped me um, really sort of realize that this could be a thing. So it was then the show, actually, when I was a teenager. And I I should say I'm from Detroit, um, you know, which is uh, a black city. Mm -hmm. I'm African-American. And um, living in this sort of very dysfunctional family um, whose grandfather, who had changed his name to like an African name, and um, (laughs) some family members had converted to Islam. And the show that I said, that is what I want was 30 something. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. And so perfect. Which was so. Like the contradictions between that life <laughs> and my life were just, you know, it was galaxies apart. Oh, my gosh. And but it was just I think the thing that I really responded to is one, this the small moments within the show and the conflicts were not huge, mm-hmm. but it was just relationships and 
there was a part, there was a side of me that I wanted the worst things happening to be the renovation still isn't complete. (laughs) Um, And so it was in some ways aspirational for Mm -hmm. a life I wanted to live, but also for the stories that I wanted to tell about the small moments and that sort of thing. Um, And so that was it. That's so cool. Yeah. And so and I, so you sort of focused from there. You came to school out here in Los Angeles? I wanted to. My father oh, wouldn't let me. I wanted to go to UCLA. Really? And so I went to Northwestern because mm-hmm. they had a good um, television film program. And I was a television film. It mm-hmm. was, at the time, radio television film yes. um, <laughs> major. And, and then, you know, but I didn't have, I, I didn't know how I was going to get myself to LA. That was always the goal. But I didn't know how that was going to happen. And I had two nickels to rub together. I was working in television news Hmm. in Chicago after I graduated and I applied to graduate school at USC. Um, and I got in, but I couldn't really still couldn't afford to go. So, um, they said, well, we can't hold your place. So I applied the next year and got in and had about 50 cents more than I had the year before. <laughs> and so I just called the dean and said, you know, I I really want to go. I can't afford it. I really just can't afford it. And just, you know, that's where the sort of being young and naive, because mm-hmm. um, now I'd be like, I shriek at just the <laughs> thought of like making that call. And she said, well, there's this woman that's offering two scholarships to um, women, but it's open to the entire school, animation, directing, producing, writing. Mm-hmm. She's like, you can apply. I was like, okay, that's what I'll do. That's something. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, But that is, I mean, it's yeah. interesting, like they're was really no internet then. There was no yeah. way to find out about that there was, stuff. Exactly, and exactly. in your naivety, maybe, but also in like the real desire to do it, right. you reached out and, yeah. and got at least some information. So I assume you got this scholarship. I got the scholarship. <laughs> and so that, um, so I, you know, packed up the car, drove out and um, went, it was in the graduate screenwriting program. But I really say that, you know, the, the real education and how the business work didn't happen until sure. after I graduated. Yeah. So we, we've talked to film school people, um, now and again, and, and have, this hasn't come up in a while, but I assume what you're getting from those classes, uh, is nuts and bolts of craft. Yes. And it's changed significantly since, Mm -hmm. since I was there. But at the time they, and I still feel like to some degree they have their foot kind of in two different, uh, two different areas. And, and one is they're still clinging to sort of being academic. So having to write the papers on silent German cinema and things like that. Um, but then also focusing on craft. So at the time, it was actually, there was a lot, they were, it was almost, it seemed to split between the two. And mm-hmm. so it was frustrating because I wasn't trying to be an academic. Right. I really just wanted to hone my craft. And so what I actually tell people now who are looking to go to graduate school, I honestly say if they're really interested in working on the craft, there are less expensive ways of yeah. doing it. Um, and and so I would 
probably pursue those over the degree. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Whether it is, you know, finding some assistant position, finding some internships. Something yeah, like that. writing groups or, ju- or yeah, extension writing. programs yeah. and things like that. I just feel like it's you can. And then now with the Internet, you can read, you know, right. so many pilots Absolutely. and television and movies and things like that. It's just, yeah. you know. Or you can make your own stuff. Mark, let's talk about it. <laughs> Sure. Was that that was sort of your entree into Hollywood, right? Yeah. Well, it was. So I was in Chicago doing improv and sketch stuff, Mm -hmm. and I had gotten also had been doing theater, uh, which is what I got my degree in. Was like theater with a focus in acting. Um, But I'm also visually impaired, and part of that is that my eyes are extra light sensitive. Hmm. And at no point during my education in acting (laughs) did anyone explain to me that if I wanted to be in film and television, sometimes they shoot outside (laughs) and not any every character is wearing sunglasses. That's weird. weird. Um, And so like it like I don't know why this never dawned on me or anyone else when I was like. I realized at some point, like I can play like, like murderers at night or blues brothers. <laughs> and, like, that's my entire Very arsenal. Limited. That's your range. Um, and so, and uh, and I was doing sketch and improv at the time, and I loved the writing and producing part of it. Anyway, I was always the one who was like dealing with the theater and like you know helping punch up all the scripts that we were doing for sketches and stuff. Um, and we had started touring a little bit. So we knew that there was, you know, that we, we had some sort of thing, mm-hmm. um, at least enough to like go around to random colleges and, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, stink up a van for a few days. But, um, so we started, we decided we wanted to make something. Um, and we knew we couldn't make, we knew it was at, it was late enough in the time of YouTube that we knew, without a platform, without a budget, anything like that, we weren't going to make a huge, big viral thing necessarily. Um, And so what we did was we decided to make a show and then make a lot of other stuff around that show. Mm -hmm. And the show idea was in retrospect, (laughs) nonsense. It's bonkers. (laughs) It was, Uh, this was around when I met you was you guys had done this and brought it to ATX TV fest, right? Yeah. And so, so describe the show. The show was uh, six founding fathers who were kidnapped from the past and brought to modern day to be used as props in the 2012 election. So that's dating it. <laughs> um, but the uh, they didn't they didn't want to support either party specifically because nobody agrees with them now. And since time travel is expensive, the uh, pack that brought them here just abandoned them in an apartment in Chicago. And so the story was about that. It was like a buddy comedy about six founding fathers living in one apartment. Um, <laughs> it's, it's so dumb. Um, it's so dumb. But, but it's a lot of fun. It, we had such a blast making it. And what we did to promote it because we had also because we had spent all of our life savings on these costumes um, <laughs> is we would just uh, so I was like the sort of like writer and director of it mm-hmm. and um, all the guys who were playing the founding fathers uh, would just b- dress up in costume and we'd go out to bars and we'd go out to like Cubs games and stuff like that and they would just get in like if I had known how easy it was to uh, meet to meet romantic interest while dressed as a founding father, I would have been doing it years earlier. <laughs> um, they, but they would go to bars and just be like rock stars because no one had any. They're like, what's happening? Like, why is John Adams singing karaoke right now? And why did he pick all star? Um, and so uh, so we had done the web series and, and 
and uh, submitted to the Austin TV Festival, um, which is when I met Ben. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we had such a great time there. We ended up winning the pitch competition. Yeah. And the reward for that was a mentor. And we got an amazing one, this woman, Dina Hillier, who mm-hmm. helped us prepare to pitch the project we pitched to actual places in Hollywood. Yeah. And, and there were like how many of you? Five of you? Six of you? Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah, it was like sort of it's a big but, group. But the main the pitch that we ended up working out was myself and Benjamin Franklin right. going around to studios and networks pitching this television show. <laughs> uh, it did not sell. If that was anyone's next question, <laughs> but but that's a valuable experience. I mean, yeah. this was someone held your hand and mm-hmm. opened the door for you uh, after you guys sort of pushed your pushed your way through and won this punk competition. And the best you part, got an, an entry into into the business. I later worked at uh, two of the places that we pitched, <laughs> and because I wasn't a founding father, nobody remembered who I was. Sure. <laughs> so I feel they're like, there was this crazy pitch a few years ago, like some founding father came in. I'm like, that sounds stupid. <laughs> who did that? that? sounds crazy. But this, I think there's an important um, conversation to be had here, which is a career in this business often begins in fits and starts. Uh, and I don't know, was that was that your experience as well? Or was it like you got that job and then you're rolling? Um, I was kind of rolling. Uh, I did spend a couple years working as an assistant mm-hmm. at the management company I told you about. Mm-hmm. And that I would recommend that for anybody who is graduating from college or new to LA and like is a little younger because <laughs> it requires a lot of stamina hmm. to work the long hours at an agency or a management company. But for me, it was, I knew nothing about the business and it was so helpful to just learn how everything worked. Mm-hmm. Um, two years into that job, I did a diversity program called NHMC. It's, I don't know. uh, it, nobody knows about it. <laughs> it is sponsored by ABC and NBC and it is primarily for Latinx writers, although everybody is welcome. But they take 10 writers every year. It's a five-week program. And you uh, leave with a new script. Mm-hmm. And then you you meet all the executives at ABC and NBC. They don't place you necessarily, but right. you get to ha- start those relationships, which is great. Mm-hmm. And then right after that program, I got my first TV job, which was working as an assistant to David Rosenthal, mm-hmm. who I think has been on your show before. And he had a pilot that year. I think it was 2014, a comedy pilot. It was CBS Studios for Fox. And it was like the hottest pilot of the year on deadline, which is like the kiss of death. Like, you know, it's not going to go when they say it's the hottest thing on deadline. That's great. Um, But it was a really fun experience, and David was a wonderful boss. And the upshot of that was, of course, that pilot didn't end up going. But his co-writer, Jenny Ehrman, had another pilot that year called Jane the Virgin, and that one did go. Hmm. And so she took me over to be her writer's assistant for season one. And then after that, things really got rolling. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Um, Were you... Did she know that you wanted to write? How did you let it... How did you make it known that you wanted to write? This is a great story. So I... I really wanted to work on the show that she and David Rosenthal uh, were doing together. It was a show called Sober Companion. It was Nick Frost and Justin Long. And it was such a good show. And I was really passionate about it. And I, I was hoping that show would go and I would 
get a job. Right. And when you're the showrunner's assistant uh, in that position, you're kind of setting up meetings for you know, staffing meetings and reading submissions and things like that. And also receiving incoming resumes for mm-hmm. the support staff. So I was, you know, looking at all these resumes coming through for the writer's assistant. And I don't know what came over me, but I just kind of walked into David's office one day and I said, you know, here are the ones that look good. And by the way, I'd like an interview <laughs> to be a writer's assistant. <laughs> and he was like, really? Like he knew he knew I was a writer, but I had never worked in TV before. So I think he thought I needed a little more time to kind of figure sure. out what I wanted to do. So the, I think the lesson from that is to just say what you want and mm-hmm. and be clear and don't be creepy, but be right. be clear about Find what your you moment, want. But be clear. yes, yeah. exactly. So when the tide was turning on Sober Companion and it was pretty clear that it wasn't going to be going, Jenny walked into my office one day and she said uh, she had read. Back then, people were still writing spec scripts. Mm-hmm. And I had written a Nurse Jackie because <laughs> mm-hmm. that was one of my favorite shows. And she was like, look, I read this. I know you you are a writer and you have a voice. And this show isn't going, but this one looks really good, Jane the Virgin. And I, and I think you're a good fit for it. So what do you think? And I had to kind of like think about it. Hmm. Showrunners walking to my office, offering me a job. <laughs> Let me take a moment to think about it. And... Um, yeah, so she did know that I was a writer, and I think I had never been in a writer's room before. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's interesting. It was I had asked my friends who were writers' assistants, like, "What do I do?" And they were like, "Sit in the corner, type everything, and do not speak." <laughs> that was my coaching, and that, and I had taken typing in in high school, so I'm, I'm a very fast <laughs> typist, so I, I had that covered. And I checked in with Jenny like two days into it to just kind of see how I was doing, and she said, "You know." you're a writer and you're here because you're a writer. I want to hear your voice. So like, there's no hierarchy here. Like sit wherever you want, pitch however much you want. Like you're here because I want you to be here. And that was so encouraging. She, a couple months into that gig, she gave me my first freelance uh, episode to co-write. A couple months later, she gave me another one. She had me pitching episodes to her, sent me to set to produce. And I tell the story to people and they get so angry. They're like, (laughs) you know, it doesn't happen that way all the time, right? Um, But it was... I was given so many opportunities yeah. on that show. It was very, very generous. Well, and it seemed like you rose to them too. I mean, you, you it didn't... was sink or swim. Yeah. It was sink or swim, and uh, I struggled, but I I swam and I learned uh, on the fly. Yeah, and it was an amazing experience. Yeah. You have to be able to yeah. improvise. It sounds like absolutely. Um, Erica, what was the first writing you got paid for? CSI New York, mm-hmm. um, and. You know, it had taken me so long to um, get into the writer's room. That had been my goal. After graduating from USC, I wanted to just get into the writer's room and be a writer's assistant. And that, that's what I had heard was like, that's the way to sort of learn how the room works. Right. And I couldn't get arrested. I just could not get a writer's assistant job to save my life. Hmm. And now having been a showrunner, I now understand a little bit more um, and wish someone could have told me then it probably would have um, helped with some of the rejection and inability to get hired. And, and that is, is that, you know, if I started running a show tomorrow, I already have people hmm. in mind that either I've been mentored 
mentoring or, you know, former assistants or things like that. So it's sort of, or I can send out a text and get eight great names, you right. know? And so it's in terms of like, you know, putting out feelers, it's really not necessary. Right. So what so, could you have done differently to, and then I think this is good advice for anyone looking for these support jobs. What could you have done to get yourself in the mix as someone who wasn't being mentored? I think, um, Actually, being more pointed about working for even interning for showrunners, television production company that were doing mm-hmm. a lot of television. That makes sense. Um, I think at the time I was just so sort of hungry that it was like, you work in the business. Um, I will, you know, intern for you, even though you just do features and yeah. that's not what I want to do. Yeah. Um, so I think that it would have helped get those relationships and, and those sort of things. Although the way I got my job at, um, CSI New York is that I had, after graduating from USC, started working for Thomas Carter, who at the time had a production company and he was doing features, television movies was still a thing. And he had, um, was also doing television Mm -hmm. and had a number of pilots that he had directed. He was the producing director on or producing. And so that was sort of, I feel like my, that's where I got my PhD or the real understanding of yeah. how the business works. And, and just like, um, uh, you were saying earlier in that I, um, he sort of introduced me to how it really works mm-hmm. and would take me into the meetings with executives and things like that, just so I can sit in and, and listen. And, um, you know, so I was doing a lot of, um, reading and going to meetings and things like that with him. And, um, he was the one that started reading my scripts and started calling agents. And Hmm. so through his efforts, I got an agent and the agent called probably within that first year and said, Anthony Zyker wants to meet with you. And I met with him and he had already staffed up his room, but he said, I will um, hire you as a writer's assistant with a guaranteed script. And I ended up wow. writing, co-writing two scripts on that first season. Um, but that was how I finally got a writer's assistant job. I wasn't looked by that time. I was looking <laughs> right. for a staff writer. <laughs> right. And uh, that's how I got yeah, a but uh, clearly something he he responded to that script, yeah. um, you know, yeah. and clearly responded to you. Was that sort of, and I remember, you know, we talked about this on the podcast years and years ago, but uh, I think it was Michael Green suggested there's sort of a magic script for many people. That is the thing that people respond to that starts to open doors for you. Was that script sort of your magic script? Yeah, um, that was. Um, I'd written a shield spec, mm-hmm. and um, That's even a good though show my to spec. yeah, yeah, it's so interesting because you know I I fell in love with thirty uh, something, and I love. <laughs> writing all these like gritty cop shows and things like that. <laughs> and um, I love the show. I wrote this back and I'd actually try uh, apply to the Disney program mm-hmm. and, and got rejected. And I remember saying to someone like, this is the best I can do. Like I, you know, like I had put so much into that script and I said, if this doesn't get you in, huh. then I don't know if this is going to if yeah. this is going to work, if I'm going to have a career, because I don't know that I can do better than this. And actually that script and I'm, I'm, you know, 
I'm so glad that I didn't quit because that script got me the job on CSI New York. It got me the job on Cold Case. It got me, you know, wow. so it was like wow. my instincts were right in that <laughs> yeah. it was a damn good script, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, you and, know when one feels different. You know when right. there's more you in that thing and that's the thing that people respond to. Yeah, yeah. So um, so that was the script that kept Yeah. Yeah. Um, let me jump back to Emmy for a second. Did you have a magic script or were you sort of just off and running because you got this Jane the Virgin job? I was off and running through Jane the Virgin. I did write a pilot early on that is still being sent out mm -hmm. that kind of was magical for me. And it was about the time that I spent in New York City, um, inspired by my all the many years I spent waiting tables and in the celebrity chef culture. And so it was a, it was a show about food and mm. celebrity and family and relationships. It was a half hour dark hmm. dramedy about all that stuff. And it was so personal and fun and strange and specific that it's gotten me several jobs and, um, yeah, that kind of was the thing that opened some doors for me. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, and again, it's it's representative of you and your interests and the way you can write and what you want to write about. Yeah. Uh, it makes sense. Um, Mark, uh, comedy is a different animal. <laughs> um, and while certainly you want to have something personal on the page, what kind of... What kind of material have you been writing over the years and yeah. what kind of traction have you gotten from that material? It's it's so interesting because the we, I think, oddly enough, one of the first things... So after I moved... To, so we did those pitches mm -hmm. for that show, nothing. And then I was like, oh, so now I'm just living in Los Angeles as a visually impaired person who can't drive with no job. <laughs> like, I thought, I thought we had something. Um, and so I first tried to get all sorts of assistant work and... Um, but having no assistant background, I couldn't. And then right. I tried to get internships, but a lot of internships, PA jobs, yeah. showrunners assistant jobs, um, all even agency mailroom, they require you to drive to get yes. stuff. And I can't do that. So um, the only place I could find that would take me was uh, uh, the wonderful people in the Sony Comedy Development Department mm -hmm. have a college internship program. So I enrolled in LACC and applied for it. Crafty. That's good um, Clever. And I, I like shaved my beard and I went in and I like pretended I wasn't 28, I think at the time. And, uh, and, and they were nice enough to hire me. And I did, I think I did tell them about my eyes in the interview, but it was just with the two assistants mm -hmm. um, in the department. And they were like, yeah, I'm sure it's not a problem. Mm -hmm. And I show up on the first day and they're like, cool, here's our lunch order. Oh, we're no. going to need you to go to like bamboo. Oh, it's no. down the street. And I just took it and I went back to my desk and I Google mapped bamboo. And I was like, <laughs> okay, it's like an 18 minute walk. So I could probably run it in. I could run there in 10 and then walk back. And so I did it and it took them a little bit, I think, before they even fully realized that I could and drive. Oh my god. Wow. Um let's let's sidebar for a second wow. and talk about this cuz you and I were talking about this a little before we started rolling. Um and you were most recently a writer's assistant on Abby. Yeah. Um and there's been some difficulty in finding either another assistant job um or something like it yeah. as a visually impaired person because well, <laughs> you you get asked a lot of questions. <laughs> well, I think that the irony to me that I have discovered from 
you know, being in LA, I guess six years now is that of every job I've ever applied for or done writing and especially writing in a writer's room is the most accessible job I've ever been exposed to. <laughs> it makes sense. Every job that leads up to that job is yeah. much less accessible. Yeah. yeah. Um, sure. So, you're in, when you're in the room, you're in the room all day. Yeah. You're probably if you're not an assistant, you're not even in front of a computer all day. Yeah. It's just conversation. And even being a writer's assistant, you're typing things people are saying. It, right. it certainly would help. I'm sure if I could see better. Um, I had a really wonderful and understanding, cool and smart and funny group of people who were, as far as I'm aware, uh, it didn't bother them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, but like, yeah, it's you don't realize my experience is obviously limited to like bad eyesight and stuff like that but statistically um the wga just put out a thing that there is 20 percent of the population are persons with disabilities but people with disabilities make up less than one percent of all writing jobs um and it's this whole domino effect of factors mm -hmm. including i mean there's there's so many things that i'm probably not qualified to talk about but one of them is just that a lot of the ways that you meet the writers that can become mentors are things like, uh, you know, through networking events. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really hard if you're a person, a person who's hard of hearing and you need a sign language interpreter. Mm -hmm. What are you going to do? Go to a WGA mixer and just stand in the middle of a bar where you can't talk to everybody. <laughs> right. mm -hmm. I can um, do that anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or God forbid you're, you're go to a WGA mixer in your wheelchair and you find out it's upstairs. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I was talking to someone the other day who said that he went on set to produce his episode and he brought crutches because he, he can maneuver with crutches. Um, but the trailer for the bathrooms had three steps to it. Yeah. And he said this, like, what if I didn't have my crutches with me or I couldn't use them? And they're like, oh, sorry, man. That's how it is. Yeah. Um, or like actors who've gone to audition and the casting room is upstairs. Yeah. It's There's mm -hmm. so many little tiny disadvantages that all mount up not to mention the fact that to answer your actual original question um when i apply for jobs if i include in any of the leading materials that i have bad eyesight the my chance of response is much much lower yeah um and even I, even having done the job, yeah. even having recommendations. And when I do get in the room, often people will ask like, oh, can you do could you just do a quick competency test? Or like, could you just show us how you would do that? And it's not I understand their concern. And so it's it's very hard to negotiate. But then at the end of the day, if they're bringing to, say, the line producer or other producers or whatever, and if they're trying to decide between several different options, yeah. that, you know, they're like, well, we have being a writer's assistant is not an easy job but it's a job that many many people are qualified to do well yeah. i think and lots of them are intelligent wonderful people who deserve the job and so why not get the person who's just not gonna possibly cause an issue down the line interesting yeah um so so what do you how do you respond to those questions i am a bad advocate i think because <laughs> i just I'll, I'll do it if that's what it takes. Yeah. Like my, the other thing that I, I guess you kind of learn is like, if you're going to make it as any person from any um, group that might be disadvantaged, you just have to outwork everybody. Mm -hmm. And there's sort of a natural problem solving ability that you develop. Mm -hmm. And one of them is how to just smile and be like, look, yeah, if you want to see me use a computer, like 
open up that computer, mm-hmm. give me two minutes to set it up pro- the way that I would set up my own computer so that I can enlarge the font and blah, blah, blah. And if you want to replicate a real writer's room, because you think that might be a slight waste of time, uh, talk about The Bachelor from last night for two minutes. Because that's when I will be doing this in the writer's room. That's great. And then, and then, I, then I'll show them if I have to. But this is, um, you know, let's, let's get deep for a second. Uh, you know, this is a, a sort of wide-ranging problem for all sorts of groups of, of non-white, non-straight men. Uh, in this industry. And it actually came up in the last recording we did. You know, there is a dearth of upper level, specifically women of color to run shows. Um, it's obviously a pipeline problem that the industry has had for years. How do we make it better? I think one um, mentoring is huge. And if you are in a place of leadership power where you can hire and fire, um, you have to, one, ensure that not only are you giving someone a shot, but you are also nurturing them and recognizing that even if they are in some ways falling short or are not as polished, Mm -hmm. it is worth your while for the greater good to really try and do your best to nurture that person and continue to, you know, promote them and all of those things so that we have in the pipeline all of these very capable people who um, are from, you know, have a different perspective, are from a different, you know, demographic or different experience and that sort of thing um, that can contribute and, and add value overall to your experience in the writer's room. Yeah. Um, I agree. It's, um, it's too common when you look at writers from diverse backgrounds who have done the programs, they're doing staff writer two, three, four plus times. And it's such a shame because what happens is the programs are wonderful for opening up, opening the door up to these writers, but then there's no incentive to keep them around when there's a whole new crop of diverse free writers. Uh, It's, it's a problem. So I know that the programs are coming from a a good place, mm-hmm. but it is frustrating. And just speaking personally, I feel like for a while for me, the dream was I'm going to write shows and then sell them and then other people will run them and I'll just <laughs> go and live my beautiful life. And I know people have those careers and right. it's it's cool. It's like whatever you want to do. But now having been in rooms for a few years, I'm so passionate about moving up the mm-hmm. ranks and and running shows because I know that's what it's going to take in order to open up the door for more women like me to have opportunities and get promoted and rise through the ranks themselves. So um, the fire is lit under me a little bit now. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> Let me, you know, there's a strange, I'll throw this out to you all to see what you think and we can take this out if if we don't have any thoughts about it. Um, But as part of this WGA solidarity challenge that sort of um, Latoya Morgan started on on Twitter and a bunch of us picked up, um, I was sent 
over 400 scripts mm. um, from WGA writers and non-WGA writers. And in those first, let's say, 200 that sort of came in immediately, they were overwhelmingly from white men. Mm. <laughs> um, is it about you know, the way we were raised, we believe we deserve this and can <laughs> send them in. I had to specifically put out a call and say, yeah, I also got overwhelmingly gay women, which maybe is just my followers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. not sure why, but I'm into it. Um, but, you know, I had to specifically put out a call and say, I need more from mm-hmm. non-white men and women um, or, or, you know, not atypical <laughs> Right. Yeah. Underrepresented yeah. groups. Um, why do we think that is? How do we f- and the flip side of it, how do we find more of those voices and how do we raise up these rookie writers who are putting themselves out there? I mean, I, I think a lot of it has to do with our sort of our our networking, our, our world. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we don't necessarily recognize that. The people that may be tapped in to, oh, you know, I just tweeted out something or whatever. Like, we don't recognize that that is in many ways a bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And For so sure. that we have to um, actually exert more effort to go outside the bubble. Because even when I look uh, in retrospect, why it was so difficult for me to get a writer's assistant, it's because I didn't know I wasn't in those circles, yeah. quite frankly. Makes sense. And so most of the people that if you are um, a white man of, of a certain age, it's understandable and human nature that your world is going to be people like you and things like that. So it it is um, if you have an interest in reaching out, then it's sort of you have to make the concerted effort to sort of get outside of your own bubble. And so and and even as a, a showrunner, I recognize that, you know, I have. There have been times where, where I'm reading scripts and considering writers and things like that. And I understand that my prejudice is, you know, I love this, you know, woman writer. I love this woman writer. <laughs> I love this woman writer. And like, you know, and so that's my bias. So I have to have either have someone that kind of, you right. know, do a little intervention and like, it's great that you love women and writers and, and things like that, but maybe you want to diversify it a little right. bit. Think about the room you know? putting together. Yes. <laughs> so, but if, if, if I hadn't, you know, if I was a white guy and that's what I was, you know, right. no it one would, would question me about, you know, if I had a room full of, right. you know, well, white men. Certainly a few like, years ago, they certainly wouldn't. Certainly a few years now ago. Now we get yeah. to question that. Yes, yes. yes, exactly. So I, I just feel like it, that is, we are all in these bubbles and because of socialization and all these things that um, it takes some effort to yeah. sort of reach out. And I think that's a good point too, is like, it is a small amount of effort on the part of showrunners, executives, agents, whatever, the people who get to say yes to other people. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, it is a little more effort. It's not picking the thing that's right in front of you because the thing that's right in front of you is 80% white guys, straight white guys, right? So making that effort has to be worth it. And making that effort is worth it, <laughs> not just to the person you're making the effort for, but that's what 
is going to keep the industry going and it's right. what's going to give us great shows instead of the same shows we've been seeing right you know right. if it's about money for you right. you're gonna get a hit show yeah, yeah. yeah exactly right and yeah. i also think if and help me if i'm phrasing this wrong but i think sometimes too the there's an issue where people think they it's sort of like oh i'll look outside my bubble when i have a reason to yeah. so it's sort of like oh mm. well one of the characters on my show is a, is yeah. you know blank and mm -hmm. they'll be like well then we need a writer that's equals blank right mm -hmm. and you know, for a variety of reasons, but one of which is all of those same underrepresented groups are also underrepresented in characters on shows. Yeah. So there's even like a disproportionately less of those like excuses, quote unquote. Yeah. And I think that everybody, you know, it's like anybody from any group, like they have parents. Do the characters on your show have parents? Do they go on dates? <laughs> Uh, have they been to the doctor before? Like those right. are all things. Any of these, these are people relatable things. Yeah, yeah like they're not walking you sound around. Almost human. <laughs> and those are all great reasons to get like a any writer who can speak to that experience, yeah. regardless. You know, thinking beyond just their gender or ethnicity or sexuality or any yeah. of those things. But that was an interesting thing I was thinking in looking at um, the credits that all of you have. Is it seems like you've never and and maybe I'm wrong, but based on those credits, you haven't been called. Upon to be the representative of your group in a writer's room or for a show. Is that, is that, am I reading that right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, although I just will say that it, it still happens. Of course. For, you know, yeah. for sure. Um, but I, I feel like in many ways that you know, I was fortunate and um, that many of the first few shows that I was on, the showrunners made a concerted effort to um, have a diverse room. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and they didn't just sort of talk the talk. They walk the walk. Yeah. Um, and promoting those people, making sure um, that they were supported. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, but I feel like I am not the norm. I, I don't I feel think you're like, right. you know, I, I when I as I'm talking to other people, I, I don't think that that is that my I, I think it's a very specific yeah. case. And you and sort that, of got thrown into a different niche, which is yeah. like the law. Niche, yeah, the exactly. Law niche. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I've had the experience of being the only Latinx writer a couple of times uh, on Charmed. There were three of us. Which was like, yeah. whoa, <laughs> wow. Um, and most of the shows I've been on have been mostly women mm -hmm. in the room. So I feel lucky that I've been in rooms with a lot of, 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 a lot of women, which has been great. And it's hard when you're the only Latinx writer or the only writer of, of right. whatever group. It's hard to not feel like you're the representative. How can you not feel that way? Yeah. You know? Um, so. But is there, I mean, and again, I mean, you've, you've all had kind of unique experiences in this way, but is there advice you can give to a writer who is the only X writer in a room? Yeah. I would say, I mean, because I have been in that situation where I'm either one or mm -hmm. one of two um, 
so though it has happened and what I often tell um, baby writers in that situation is that what really sort of got me through is having a network of women who are in similar experiences or, or on different shows. Yeah. So they are mm-hmm. the, you know, the only woman on right. this other show. And so we sort of came together and, and, and this happened early on in my career. Um, and it really helps to depersonalize it mm-hmm. because so often I feel like being that one, whatever you're, you're that diversity hire or right. whatever it is, um, it can really undermine your mm-hmm. confidence Absolutely. and all those things. And so when you're talked over or your ideas are repackaged, you know, in a male voice <laughs> and then get on the board and that sort of thing, it's if you are isolated and don't know that this is a sy- systemic thing that mm-hmm. is happening, yeah. then it can start to really erode um, your performance. And so I feel like it is really important to have those conversations and have that network of women that you can rely upon and you can, you know, have a few drinks and talk about, oh, yeah, you know, this happened and it you recognize, oh, it happened to this person and that person. So it's not me. You know, it is something else is going on here. Um, I feel like that helps a lot. Absolutely. Um, One of the most powerful experiences I had was after getting my first WGA points. Mm-hmm. Um, I got, I, I opened the email that was like, you're in, you know, welcome. <laughs> and then it, Give uh, us all your it money. was, a, <laughs> and then it was like a calendar of all the events that mm-hmm. month. And the next day was a meeting of the committee of writers with disabilities. And I was like, Oh my God, I have to go. I like canceled my plans and I went and I, I'd never met that many other writers with disabilities before in my yeah. life. And, um, and it was such a powerful group to in um just to have that experience of having other people around who have gone or are going through similar things uh and to your original question i mean i i haven't been uh, the token person in a room mm-hmm. but boy if anyone wants to write a show with some <laughs> blind characters uh i'll be your guy i mean the <laughs> the real issue for the disabled community is that less than 2.5% or something like that of all speaking characters on television are disabled mm-hmm. in any way, even like, you know, more invisible illnesses and right. things like that. And of them, most of them are straight white men overwhelmingly played by able-bodied actors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like the token, I, I hope the token thing can become a problem in the near future because there's <laughs> yeah. enough shows it's that need even tokens. Right yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I loved what you said, Mark, about, you know, does, does your character, do they have parents? Mm-hmm. Do they yeah. have kids? Do they, do, do they date? You know, like I'm, I've just recently dipped my toe into, into Shondaland and what Shonda sort of brought to the world of TV is like, we're going to have black and brown people on TV and we're not going to make it about, make a story about their blackness or their brownness, you know? So like, can we have a character who is disabled? And like, that's not what the story is. They're, they're just a character on the show. Um, I, I'm really excited by that. And 
I think just to echo what Erica was saying, the sticking together is really important. We have uh, my friend Deanna Mendez, who's a writer, put together this list of a uh, hundred Latina writers. We call it La Lista. <laughs> and there's a hundred of us now. And so you can't say anymore, like, we're yeah. looking for Latinas. We can't find them. We've got a list for you. There's a hundred of us who have all, we have experience. We've all staffed on shows before. Um, so sticking together and really going with your gut because sometimes sometimes my gut will tell me I got to speak up about this. And sometimes it's like, I don't have to carry the flag, you know, in this moment, uh, I don't need to put that pressure on myself. So, mm-hmm. um, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, listen, let's, let's talk about something fun. Uh, <laughs> what are you watching on television these days? What is getting you excited or inspired? Uh, what are you talking about with your friends, your rooms, your loved ones? Um, Mark, let's start with you. We just finished, uh, Dead to Me, mm-hmm. which I really mm-hmm. enjoyed, and Killing Eve season two has been awesome. So good. And so then, good. and then when we don't want to, it's, it's. I feel like we have different modes. Like some, my wife and I will sit down, and some days we're just like we're exhausted. Put on like <laughs> Outlander, like something that's just sort of like big, imaginative, fun. Some days we're exhausted, and it's like put on Brooklyn Nine Nine. Right. I can't wait for the sad final season of The Good Place. Yeah. I mean, the season still gonna be will great. be amazing. I'm sad that it's the final one. There is... I, hope this, I don't think this has ever come up on the podcast before, but TV has gotten so good that there are like no... There are so few shows now that I can put on right before bed just to not watch. Mm-hmm. Right. Because <laughs> everything is so good. Right. Yeah. So we're like watching Family Ties. Yeah. <laughs> if you fall else. asleep, it's okay. <laughs> right. uh, Erica, what are you watching? Um, well, not a whole lot, I must say. The caveat of, you know, sure. two kids, three and a half and under, it's not a lot. But um, Meryl Streep on Big Little Lies. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, and then also, and I, I feel like this is the power of Juliana Margley's. Um, and that is the hot zone um, I watched and there's so much television right now so the DVR is just stacked <laughs> right. to the gills and I think one of the things that my husband and I argue about I think it was probably one of our first arguments he's like can we have a conversation about the DVR the shows the number of shows and I'm I can always liar. throw out it's, it's work I, I you can't you can't delete it's work and um, that is so funny and uh, so but you know so it, it's so difficult to because you've you know you want to try new things and sample shows and then you get sucked in and all that sort of stuff but and I feel like the hot zone is one of those shows where it would have been on the list mm-hmm. but it would not have been at the top of the list but I was like, but Juliana Margulies. So I just want to see. And <laughs> and then I, you know, and she's in it and she's so watchable. Yeah, she's so, so compelling. Yeah, that I'm, you know. That's I, hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah it's one that's piled up for me. There are a couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. To start it. Yeah. It's a good one. Emmy, There's what are you watching? So much. <laughs> I also devoured Dead to Me. Mm-hmm. Fleabag season two was transcendence. Um, Chernobyl, mm-hmm. I devoured. Barry season two. Mm-hmm. I, I just there's just so much. I'm a, I'm a big musical theater person, so I loved Fosse Verdon. Yeah, it's really really good. What is scratching yeah. that itch for you now? Like it's so few and far between. Yes, but well, we're also getting more of it than we did like yeah. ten years ago. Um, well, 
I sing a lot of karaoke. Sure. I kid you not. Like I will go, if I'm writing a pilot and I need to take a break, I will go downtown (laughs) to little Tokyo to max and get a room by myself. It's like $5 during happy hour, which is one to eight. I'm not kidding. And I will sing for an hour and it just scratches that itch for me. Wow. Um, And, uh, or I'll take a dance class. I love, I love to dance. Yeah. I feel like that's definitely a part of my writing process to like get out of my head and like into my mm-hmm. into my body a little bit. Let's talk about that for a second before we wrap up. Um because I think that's a, that's an important thing is like I I cook and yeah. I need that because I'm completing something. Yeah. Right? Uh what is the thing you do that is not writing that helps your writing? For me it's um <laughs> It's just gonna. It sounds. Uh, I want it to be something else, interesting, <laughs> and so like less girly. It's like I decorate. It's like you know. I need to zone out and just watch HGTV mm-hmm. and you know mm-hmm. uh, redecorate and pull things from Pinterest and you know that sort <laughs> of yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, it's a so, different kind of. It's brain a different activity, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that totally makes sense. Yeah, and I feel like I hear the HGTV one a lot. To be honest, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people find that I can watch it without having to invest in, intellectually in it. Exactly. It turns off the brain and lets my brain think of the thing that I'm, I can't think of directly. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mark, exactly. what's yours? I do, I guess th- the three things I do, I read fiction because mm-hmm. I love fiction. And I lost touch with it a little that bit. It still I think. feels like work. It's <laughs> a little bit. But I also read like pulpy fantasy and okay. sci fi stuff. <laughs> right. So, um, and then I, I've always, trying to like learn another language mm-hmm. with varying degrees of success. So I'm like in the middle of Spanish right now. Um, but I feel like every time I learn a new language, it helps me think about the world in a slightly different mm-hmm. way. Um, and it counted under languages as like an instrument, like to learn music mm-hmm. or uh, like computer coding. Um, and then the real turn off my brain is like Dungeons and Dragons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's still, and I, I don't yeah. play that stuff, but that's still storytelling. And it's like, you're deep in that, from what I understand. I mean, not you personally, but yeah. one has to be sort of deeply invested in that because you do it for hours on end. Yeah. yeah. Well, we started doing it for shorter because we're like, oh, we're adults and we just can't do this <laughs> the same way. It's not like a Sunday where you have six hours. That's fair. Um, That's but fair. Uh, but yeah, it is, I guess. But I like I came from improv and it's sort of close mm-hmm. to that in a way where you're like yeah. in it and you have to do it on the fly. Mm-hmm. And it gets me out of my head. Where I would otherwise be like pacing around my room being like, joke, 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 joke. Where is a joke? There's a joke here. Where is it? Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. Thank you all so much for coming in. Uh, You are a great group. I hope to see you again soon. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for listening to the Writers Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker just like it sounds, and let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers' Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you, and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. Engineered and mastered by Alex Sarchet. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook. <laughs>